Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Um, we're in the middle of a series, second part of a series called The Table. And it's really this concept that the table uh, is a fixture within culture. It's something that for us is a gathering place. It's a place for us to come together. Uh, it's meant to be a place of laughter, deep friendship, uh, fulfillment. Uh, and it's pretty cool that God created life, not just uh, where we're robots and going through uh, life functionally, but God has uh, developed life to such an extent that he wants us to share it with others and to experience the goodness of life, the taste of food, the laughter with friends and the close-knit relationships. But what we've also realized, and we discussed last week as we kicked this thing off, is the table, while it's meant to be a place that brings people together, it's also tended to become something that has separated us. Uh, it becomes for us a place where certain people have a seat at the table and certain people don't. Uh, it is a place where some people... Um, on the outside looking in, and some people are in the inside. Uh, and, and typically what seems to happen, uh, and it seems to be this is more and more pronounced in our culture, is that our tables get smaller and so smaller. We get more and more detached from those around us. But what we're looking at in this series is that what God wants to do through Jesus is knock down the walls, send out the invitations, and he wants to say to everyone, you have a seat at the table. And we're looking at through the vantage point in the eyes of the evangelist or the gospel writer, Luke. Uh, there are four accounts of uh, Jesus' life, uh, four facets or perspectives, if you will, uh, on Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Luke, uh, as the others do, picks a certain theme, and he has a certain uh, way about telling the story of Jesus. And he tells us right at the outset that he's out to set out a detailed account of Jesus. He wants to give you some clarity on who Jesus was and what Jesus was about. And the way that he communicates that is through themes. Uh, there's several themes in Luke's gospel, but one of the more pronounced one is something called table fellowship. Uh, it's, it's a place where you see Jesus either at a meal, uh, going to a meal, or coming away from a meal. And what Luke does is he uses the place of the table frequently to extend a picture, a physical picture of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to take root in a culture. Because he steps into a culture where the table had become very divided. Uh, there was probably no more divided place in the ancient Near East than the table itself. It became a boundary marker. It became a place where uh, it was a way to display honor or shame or social hierarchy or gender. It became the place that was pushed certain people out and brought other people in. And so Jesus steps into this ancient Near Eastern world at a specific time and he redefines the table all built around his identity, who he is and what he's about. And so today we're going to look at another episode where Jesus is at a table in Luke chapter 7. If you've got a copy of scripture, I invite you to take that out. Uh, if you don't own a copy, you would like one. They have those at the Welcome Center. We'd love to give that to you uh, free of charge. We, we think that's the best gift we can give you uh, is a copy of God's scripture for yourself. But if you don't have it, don't worry. We'll throw the scriptures up on the screen and you can track along with us. And we're going to drop into a story today 
that has everything to do with the head of the table. Now, if you look at this table in front of me, this is uh, uh, something we're familiar with, right? Uh, Maybe your table at home is not decorated this nicely. Mine's certainly not always, and I'm sure yours is not always either. But we understand the setup of this, right? And matter of fact, if you were going to come to this table uh, and you were a guest, the, the last place you would probably go instinctively because of the cultural markers, the identifiers in your mind, you probably wouldn't come up as a guest and pull out that seat or that seat. Uh, mainly because you understand culturally that those are the head of the table. They're usually meant to uh, dictate something. Specifically, uh, the person that is at the head of the table is the one that has the most prominence in the household frequently or in the business or at the event. And so the last thing you do as a guest is come up and sit at the head of the table typically. Uh, if you did, people would be like, why, does, why is she sitting at the head of the table? She's a guest here. Or why is he stepping up? and thinking he's something because he's sitting at the head of the table. And we talked about that a little bit last week, but this week is all about who's sitting at the head of the table. And just as we understand that when we come to the head of the table here, that there are certain cultural identifiers with where people sit, the same was true in the first century. Typically, the first century uh, table in the ancient Near East didn't look like this, uh, and that's probably not a newsflash to you. Uh, uh, this one's really nice. It's live edge, walnut. It's got some cool legs on it and all that kind of stuff, and it's got these cool decorations and all that. But a, a first century table would not have been a flat surface that would have been long like a rectangle. It would have been a shape in a, in a U. And it would have been low to the ground. And so when you see in the Gospels uh, descriptions, uh, you often hear them say things like they were reclining at the table. And the picture would be that if you had a U-shaped table, the head of the table would actually be at the, the peak of the U. If you were at the center of the U, then that meant that you were the host of the event. And the closer that you got from the edge, to the center would be a cultural marker. It would be a way to show where you fell in the pecking order or the social hierarchy. And it would show whether or not you were close to the head or you were farther away. And that was a way for you to know, everyone to know where you fit. And ultimately, if you weren't at the table, that was an indicator as well. That shows that you were not even worthy to come to the table. And at the table, as they were reclining, obviously it's low, and so they would lay most often on their left side, and they would eat with their right hand. So if you're left-handed, I'm sorry. Uh, it would have been a really tough place for you to, uh, to, to learn to eat. Maybe you become ambidextrous or something like that. But you would lay on your left side, eat with your right hand, and you would extend your legs out. Uh, some of you are like, man, I'd have to stretch a lot uh, to be able to do this. And you would kind of dovetail around the perimeter of the table. And so you can kind of see how it's laid out, right? As people's legs are sticking out at a diagonal pace, and then you've got a U, and a fixed at the head of the table would be the most prominent and honored member or frequently the host of the event, uh, and everybody would be eyes on that individual. Frequently, it was a male. Uh, most often, it was a male because of the social hierarchy and the patriarchal culture that they were in. Women were not often allowed at tables like this, and so they would get together as like guilds or families or groups, and they would show who was really really in charge. And in this particular occasion, in Luke chapter 7 and verse 36, we're introduced and dropped down into a story where the head of the table gets redefined. 
and there's an unannounced guest that shows up and it totally upends all the cultural understanding of what God is about, who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. So if you can visualize for a second the picture to the best of your ability, watch what happens in the scene. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to the dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined and there it is at the table. Jesus is at the table and he gets an invitation from a Pharisee. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible or you've grown up in or around church, uh, uh, you might have a loose knowledge or probably like a picture of a Pharisee. And you're, they're usually the bad guys. And probably by the end of the Gospels, that's rightfully so because the, they had a great hand in uh, bringing Jesus to the cross. But uh, at the outset, these were the most respected individuals in the community. They were the caretakers, if you will, of uh, God's law and the people of God. And, and so they weren't really bad guys uh, initially. They were deceived guys. They, they were trying to do the best they can to honor God, and they definitely got off track. Well, this particular occasion, we're confronted with two individuals, Jesus and a Pharisee. And a Pharisee has invited Jesus to this U-shaped table, and something is going to happen where the host who is at the head of the table gets redefined and he gets confronted with his false understanding of what it means to be the head of the dinner. Now, the question on the outset we have to ask is how did Jesus get here? Because this is an odd scene. Uh, it seems that Pharisees are the enemies of Jesus and Jesus is obviously Jesus. And so how did they get at this, this house? Where did this uh, uh, arrive or derive? How did we get to this predicament where Jesus has got an invitation to this dinner? Well, three quick things. The first thing is a cultural thing. Um, the way that they would typically um, engage in conversation and debate was around a table. It's why some of you don't like going to Thanksgiving meals with your family because that uncle or your cousin is going to be on the opposite side of the political spectrum or a, a different faith belief or just a different opinion or wants to tell you how to raise your kids. And so you're really not excited about the conversations at Thanksgiving. But if you could kind of travel back in time for a second, they didn't have internet. Uh, they, did, uh, they didn't have TV and Netflix. The way that they were entertained or they entertained ideas was through conversation. And the primary place that the conversations took place were around tables. And what would typically happen in the cultural moment that they were in is something called a symposium. A symposium was a, a dinner followed by a debate or an argument. And so they would get together, share uh, rapport and all that kind of stuff. And then following the dinner, the host and whoever uh, the other individual uh, that was invited was, they would get into an exchange of ideas. And it could be a philosophical debate, uh, a religious debate. It could be a cultural debate. Uh, and everyone would sit and take in these conversations and they would make decisions about the legitimacy and the validity of the specific arguments and the individuals that actually proclaim them. And so what's happening here is a cultural thing. Jesus has gotten an invitation to exchange in a debate. And the reason that's facilitating this is primarily because of something that had happened geographically. There had been an incident earlier in Luke chapter 7 that happened in this exact same town that caused a stir and caused a lot of questions about who Jesus was that actually made people want to say, 
say, who is this man? And one of the groups that wanted to know who he was was the Pharisees. And they were arguing probably within their own ranks. It was like anything. There were some like ultra conservative right wings. There were probably more liberal wings, if you will, of the Pharisaical group. And so this particular guy, this Pharisee, invites Jesus because he thinks there could perhaps be some validity to who Jesus is and what he's about. He's still on the fence. Why is he on the fence? Well, something big had just happened that caused everybody to talk about Jesus. And here's what they were saying. They were all filled with awe. This is earlier in Luke chapter seven, verse 16. And they praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Something happened. What was the thing that happened? Well, if you read back into the story, you'll find out that this is the first incident that we know of where Jesus raised somebody from the dead. There was a, they're in the city of Nain and there was a widow who had a son that passed away and Jesus interrupts the funeral, raises the son back to life. And of course, everybody's talking about it. It's one of those irrefutable things. Uh, uh, everybody's saying, did you see what happened at the funeral? And so word gets out about this raised uh, to life moment uh, at the funeral and people are talking and they make uh, reason, reasonable conclusions about who Jesus is if you're a Jewish individual. They think, well, he's a prophet sent from God. If you read uh, Jewish Old Testament history, you'll know that there's some famous uh, folks back in there that were prophets like Elijah, Isaiah, these powerful messengers of God, mouthpieces of God that would actually voice a message to God's people and declare who he was and they would usher in the kingdom of God in very specific ways and they would be oftentimes met with miracles. And so when they saw Jesus, they could only logically deduce, well, this is a prophet. This guy is a prophet. Look at what he's doing. And not only is he just a generalized prophet, but this is someone sent from God to help his people. And if you could get into their cultural moment, they needed a lot of help. They were uh, under the thumb or the heel of a Roman uh, government that was treating them like a uh, a pawn in their effort toward world dominance. That's all they were. Uh, they were basically just instruments. Uh, they were tools for their use and they would uh, excise great taxes, abuse them harshly. And it was all because they were in charge. They were the might makes right. They were advancing their new age of world dominance and the Jews were just there to facilitate the process and they needed help. They were down and out they had lost their former glory and then Jesus shows up and he interrupts the funeral and they can only logically deduce that this guy is a prophet and news got out. So much so that it, it spread from Judea to the whole countryside. Everybody was talking about Jesus. And so the question was, is he or is he not a prophet? Is he or is he not from God? And to underscore that, what Luke does preceding the passage we just looked at in Luke chapter seven, verse 36, is he introduces not just the cultural moment or the geographical situation, but he talks about the spiritual significance of what's happened to set up the story. We, we referenced it last week, but real briefly, here's the synopsis in Luke seven thirty and then 33 through 35, watch what happens. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Now, John, who is John? John, we typically call him John the Baptist. 
or John the baptizer because he was doing something really strange in the culture. He was taking a Jewish act of baptism, which they did, and he reworked it, placing people under underwater to uh, display a, what would typically be a, a reference to ceremonial cleanliness. Uh, he would then say, this is a mark of a new creation. And you remember the exchange maybe that Jesus had with John, who was his cousin. Uh, you're going to baptize me. No, I'm going to baptize you, that whole kind of thing. Well, in that moment, John comes on the scene and he knows his role. His role is to basically be the forerunner for the Messiah, the one that has been promised that is truly going to help deliver God's people. They were looking for a real deliverance. And so John the Baptist came and here's what they saw with him. He didn't eat bread or drink wine. He was very, it was more like an ascetic lifestyle for John. Uh, he, he would eat like uh, wild locust and honey, but he would kind of defer normal physical appetites. And that was the forerunner. But when Jesus shows up, the son of man, he comes eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. So, Luke is doing this. He's setting the stage geographically. He's setting the stage culturally. And then he's placing it within the spiritual continuum of God's overarching story. The one that he's been talking about from times past, ancient literature, ancient messengers, ancient prophets, the son of man's coming. And how are you going to know that the kingdom of God is near? It's not gonna be an aesthetic lifestyle. It's going to be one that's a, a celebration around a table. There's going to be eating, there's gonna be drinking, there's going to be laughter. Joy is going to return to God's people. The table has been set. But something's happening at this table, this situation that we've just seen, this scene, is it makes sense that they're gonna have this debate and they've got the table set, everybody's there. But what they did not plan for or could not have expected happens in verse 37. And here's what happens. A woman in that town, where's the town? The town of Nain, they're still in the same town, who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, a woman, it's, it's notable for us that we don't even have her name. Uh, and, and that makes sense uh, from a cultural perspective is because uh, at this point in the story, she does not have a name. She's an unnamed woman, basically saying she does not have value. Uh, she's not even uh, honored enough to even be, uh, for us to know who she is. Uh, basically, she's described by her reputation. Her reputation precedes her. And her reputation around the town of Nain was everybody knows who she is. Everybody knows what she's about. She's living what most scholars believe a very promiscuous lifestyle. And one of the markers of that would have been an alabaster jar of perfume around her neck that would often been used as a kind of an invitation or an enticement uh, for promiscuity and those type of things. And so she would invite um, a, a reputation upon herself based on her conduct and everybody around town knew who she was. Well, she shows up to this banquet and the first thing that's out of place is she's a woman. There's no other women in the room, perhaps maybe other than servants, and she busts up in there and, in, and she just skips over all of um, the levels of propriety. 
she basically comes to the table and as she barges in, everybody would have been like awkward moment. Uh, at the very least, uh, there would have been some anger. There would have been some rustling around, get her out of here kind of thing. But watch where she goes in verse 38. Verse 38 says, she stood behind him at his feet weeping and she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. So get this picture. She rushes into the room, which would have been a collective gasp moment. Uh, and then she moves past all the levels of social hierarchy, past all the other men in the room. And where does she find her place? She comes and posts up at Jesus's feet. And she just skips over all the other levels and she finds herself at the head of the table. And who does she go to? She doesn't go to the host of the event, who is the Pharisee, who is the well-respected, known uh, individual of the law in town. Instead, she goes to this miracle worker. She goes to the one that had just raised this widow's son, the one that was the answer, the son of man that came and he was, had a reputation for eating with sinners and becoming associated with them. And the question that you've got to ask for this is what got her there? I mean, what would have caused her to come over all the hurdles, all the obstacles to come into the room to begin with, but not just come in the room, but actually pass by everybody and go to the head of the table? Well, I think there's a few things that facilitated that. The first thing is I think she had what I'm gonna call an informed understanding. Um, one of the mysteries uh, that is throughout the gospels and the way Luke tells it is uh, the question that's pressing on everyone, who is Jesus? Okay, uh, if you read it, it's another one of his themes. He's always trying to provoke you to ask the question, well, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And, and there's a lot of questions and there's actually one of these that comes at the end of this. We're asking the question, who is Jesus? And so what we see in real time is we see people putting their faith and trust and belief in who Jesus is. And so Luke tells the story, first half of Luke, who is Jesus? Second half of Luke, he tells, this is what Jesus came to do. But we're still in the first half and we're trying to understand who is this man. That's why he's at the banquet, at the dinner table to begin with. That's why they're gonna have a debate uh, to begin with because we're trying to figure out who you are, what you're about. But what this would suggest is not just that this woman heard by reputation what Jesus did, but that she had some prior knowledge of the information about who Jesus was that he actually was the one sent from God, that he actually was the one who was going to become the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that he was actually going to go to a cross and he was actually going to be resurrected. Uh, stuff that uh, most of his disciples had a really hard time believing. But for him, what happens, uh, what happens for her in this situation is she comes, she gets a, uh, she has this information and so she comes filled with this information and this information about who Jesus is pushes her forward. And what I think you see with her is an extreme lack of inhibition, uh, enough to where she said, I'm willing to go in the room. I'm willing to go past all the cultural uh, presuppositions about who I am and how they see me. I'm gonna come through all of that uh, because I see who Jesus is. And that leads her not just to come into the room, but it, it leads her to what I'm gonna call an exuberant generosity. 
She's excited. She takes what is perhaps the most valuable thing to her, uh, probably her most prized possession. It might be what some of us would uh, probably associate with a life savings. It was something very valuable to her. And she took it and she pours it out for Jesus. You see, when you see who Jesus is, it presses you in and causes you to do things that are culturally unacceptable. And it causes you to be generous with what you have in comparison to the one that's in front of you. And I think because of that, what you see on display, and we're going to see this play out, is scandalous grace. We're going to see an interchange between a woman that is of ill repute in society, and we're going to see how Jesus handles this situation and how he extends scandalous grace to her, stuff that caused people to ask questions, stuff that got Jesus a really bad rap within the culture. I mean, he's, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, and so he must be a sinner. He must be a glutton. He must be a drunkard because look at where he hangs out and look who he hangs out with. And what, we, what do we know? Every time that scandalous grace shows up, we also always see fierce opposition. Fierce opposition for the people that like everything neat and tidy. We like everything to fit into our understanding, our presuppositions with cultural norms. And what we're going to see here is there's going to be a pushback to the grace of Jesus. And all these are zeroed in in a moment at a scene at a table. And so... In the moment, if we jump back into the scene in verse 39, watch what happens. Verse 39 says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Uh, two things are happening. First of all, you can see his intention. He was say, like, is he a prophet, is he not? He looks at the situation because this woman is touching him at the table. She's caressing his feet. She's wiping her hair on his feet. And what does he say? He says, well, obviously he's not a prophet because if he was, he would not allow her to touch her. He would cast her out, but he must not be a prophet, which is ironic because we're about to find out that he's, Jesus is actually seeing his inner thoughts because it's really a, it's a dangerous thing to think in front of Jesus, okay, uh, to have a conversation with yourself. He talks to himself, it says, and he makes a reasoned conclusion based on his cultural expectation that he obviously can't be, he can't be a prophet because look who is touching him. So what happens? Well, watch how Jesus responds to this inner conversation. He answered him and he said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. He he enters into a conversation based on a private internal conversation, and this is what Jesus says. Continuing in verse 40, we'll expand it out, and he says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, and so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So what does Jesus do? He goes into what's typically called a parable or an illustration or a story. And it's pretty obvious to us as uh, onlookers that he's, he's trying to compare. He's comparing the Pharisee who is at the place of honor and the woman of ill repute that comes in and has found herself moved up to the head of the table with Jesus and she's not supposed to be there. And no one has a cultural uh, explanation for it. So what does Jesus do? Jesus is about to give them a spiritual um, explanation for it. And he goes to a story. And he says, there's two people 
that are both in, a, in, in the same situation. Both of them owe a money lender. Both of them owe, and neither of them can pay the money lender back. And, and so there's some reality to this that says, hey, listen, it doesn't matter if you owe 100000 in debt or you're a million dollars in debt. If you only have $10, it really doesn't matter the, uh, the level of the money of, of the debt. You're bankrupt either way. But there's also the reality, not just of the situation, of the comparison of the feeling that you have. If you've ever owed someone something and maybe it was money or maybe it was a situation where somebody really went to bat for you, depending on what the situation was, the, the dynamics of the situation, you would have different levels of emotion based on what was uh, the debt that was taken care of on your behalf. So if you owe, like, I mean, I don't know what you owe, but whatever you owe, I got college students here, whatever student loan debt you're racking up right now, uh, going to ASU or whatever. Uh, let's say somebody comes in, comes in and I mean, it's $50,000 in debt and somebody comes in and says, hey, listen, I want to take care of you. Like somebody at church comes over and is like, hey, how much in debt you are? Let me write you a check. You're like, I'm coming back to that church, right? Uh, they're helping me out. And you would go overboard in gratitude because you understood how deep you were and what it took to get you out. But if you did not really, if you were not really aware, if you did not know how in debt you were, there would basically be no emotion. There would be no response. It wouldn't matter to you. And so what the comparison is, is you've got two people that are in equal situation. One realizes it and one doesn't. And so Simon responds to the scenario and the question, who's going to love him more? And this is what he says. It, it, it makes sense. I suppose that the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, you judge correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and he said, Simon, do you see this woman? Now, don't miss this moment. They're at the head of the table. You, let's just say you've got uh, the host here, the Pharisee, Simon, here. You've got an unnamed woman over here because you're, you know, Jesus' legs are stuck out to the back. And what does he do? He turns his back to the host. And this would have been a huge cultural insult. And he is on his, uh, just in a posture where he's sitting down and he's on his back he has his feet out and he's looking at the woman. And the question's kind of ironic because it's like, well, yeah, everybody sees her. Like, I mean, like if there's anything any, anybody sees in the room, it's her because she's not supposed to be here. But Jesus turns his back for the person that he's supposed to show honor as the hose and he gives honor to her. He looks her in the eye and he asks Simon a question with his back to him. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? Now, just think about what it would be like to be this guy, Simon. You're seeing the back of Jesus, and over his shoulder, you see this woman. And the question is penetrating because what he's really saying is, not do you see her physically, but do you see her? Do you see what's happening? Do you see what she recognizes? Do you see that the walls have been torn down, that she just came up here and I'm not casting her out? As a matter of fact, what Jesus does is Jesus defends her. She does not defend herself. And not only does he defend her, but he commends her. He looks at her in the face and he acknowledges her. And she's doing some unbelievable things. One of the things she's doing is she's taking her hair down and she's rubbing his feet with her hair. Now, within the culture, if you were married, you would have a veil. Uh, typically, the wedding ceremony was called the veiling. 
And the reason for that was, is you only showed your husband your hair in their culture. And when you were uh, unmarried, though you would not have a veil on your hair, you would not let your hair down. And the reason you would not let your hair down, because that would signify that you were kind of, I'm going to say this sensitively, like you were open for business, you know? Uh, it was supposed to, it was a means of attraction or enticement. It was meant to communicate physically something deeper than just seeing your hair. I and mean, there's a lot of cultural differences going on here. But she has taken her hair down in this place of honor, and now she's doing something unthinkable. She's doing something that usually is a reference for something evil, and she is using it as an act of worship on Jesus' feet. And the question is, do you see this, Simon? Do you see her? Yes, I see what she's doing. Yes, I see her hair. But what Jesus is asking is a deeper question. Do you really see her? Because Jesus is tearing down the walls. He's sending out an invitation. And he's saying, everyone has a seat at the table. And then he goes a little deeper. He finishes this whole episode out by saying this. He says, I came into this house, into your house, excuse me, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. A list of comparisons of things that she did versus things that he didn't do. That means that though he had Jesus over for dinner, for an argument and a debate. He was a guest at best. But what does she see? She sees that Jesus is the true head of the table. She comes and gives him the ultimate honor. She worships him in the presence of others. She, she is exuberant in her generosity. She is uninhibited in her joy and her action. She is demonstrative in her love for Jesus. Why? Because she knows what he has come to do and who he is. And she knows how far she was from God. And God brought her close. And he says, because of this, Jesus would say, because of this, in Luke 7, 47, if we go on to the next verse, he says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. You know, it, a lot of times we look at people that are... Um, I mean, they're, they, they love the Lord, I mean, and they're exuberant. Like, I don't know if you come in here and you like see somebody, they're just really, I mean, emotional or they're excited, you know, and that kind of freaks us out sometimes. And, um, but if we could just go to the heart of that and say, what's behind that? And, and I'm gonna, one of my, something I do sometimes, I mean, I sit over here uh, and I sit in the same place, I'm a creature of habit. But a lot of times when I'm worshiping or sing, we're singing a song, I. I will not look forward. I will actually look at some of you and that freaks you out, so sorry. But here's why I do it. I look over my shoulder because I know some of your stories. I do. I mean, I know the pain you've gone through. I know what you've been wrestling with. And it, and it is encouraging to me a lot of times when I look over my shoulder and I see you talking about the faithfulness of God when I know you've had to question it. When, when I look over my shoulder sometimes and I see you like pouring out yourself in praise to God, uninhibited in, in, a, in a room full of people. When I know what you've been through with your family, you've been through a great loss and you're singing things like it is well with my soul. 
when, when you see seeing things like Jesus paid it all, and that's very real to you because you know what all means to you. The things that you have struggled to forget about that you've done that God has chosen never to remember. To, to see people pour themselves out because of the greatness of who God is and how far they've come because of his grace, his scandalous grace. You see, in the room, there was no escaping this. Someone who was forgiven little loves little, but someone who comes to the reality that they've been forgiven much loves much. And in this room, it was on display, the contrast and the distance between those two realities. A very religious person that had it all together, the table was set and everybody was dressed to the nines versus this woman that says, I'm not supposed to be here, but I'm coming anyway because my Jesus is in there. And so Jesus putting her on display is looking right at her and Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And this is the beauty of grace. You see how the story was focused on her. See her, look at her. Uh, I mean, this is the awkward moment in the room. And at the very end, this is what grace does. Grace turns the attention off of the receiver, the recipient, and it puts it on the one that's extending grace. The greatest way that God is glorified in the church is not by everybody having it all together. Uh, the way that God is glorified in the church is when people see the grace of God in broken lives, sinful lives, people that are honest about their pain, honest about their weakness, honest about their failures. Jesus meets them there and then all eyes have shifted from her in the story to Jesus. And they're now asking the predominant question in Luke's mind, who is this that even forgives sins? There can be only one, God himself. And as they're talking about Jesus, Jesus is almost finished with her. And this is how the story ends. He says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. In that moment, she was able to walk away from the table where she walked in, she had no peace. When she was able to leave the table because of an encounter with Jesus, she left with complete freedom and complete peace. Perhaps for the first time in a long time or the first time in her life, she was valued as an individual, not by what the world said about her, what people said about her, what she thought about herself, her insecurities, her own failures. She saw in the face of Jesus, the grace of God. And with the grace of God comes the freedom of God. And it all comes because she recognized who the true head of the table is, and it's Jesus. And I think the problem for many of us is we haven't recognized Jesus at the head of the table. A lot of times, quite honest, we're in the position of Simon and we're cool with Jesus enough to have him over for dinner, but we're never gonna lay down and worship him. We're not gonna be extending scandalous, uh, exuberant generosity in front of anybody. We're not gonna give away anything. We're not gonna worship him for who he is and not worry what people think about him. What we're we gonna do, we're gonna sit here and we're gonna talk about Jesus. We're gonna talk about ideas and we're gonna hold out on our conclusions about Jesus to another time. But the moment of faith in the room that day was not because Simon had her over, it's because she entered the room. And in that moment, life was changed. And there was a transfer because she saw who was at the head of the table. 
And so the question for each of us is, who's sitting at the head of our table? For some of us, it's us. For some of us, it's someone else or it's something else that's got our attention and our affection. There's something you're pouring your life out for. The question I think before each one of us is, is Jesus the recipient of our worship? Is he the recipient of our praise? And if not, then he's not the head of the table. And so I think it's um, appropriate that at the end of a passage like this and a day like this is for us to consider where we are with God, where we are with Jesus. And my question to you simply is this, is have you made him the head of your table? I'm gonna invite you, if you would, if you would bow in prayer for just a second. The band's gonna come out as we prepare for communion. But I would like to extend an invitation. I'd like to tear down the wall and extend an invitation I think that would honor Jesus. I'm gonna invite you to come in and recognize Jesus as the head of your table. And you can do that today simply by just confessing Jesus as your Lord and your Savior by saying to him, Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't deserve to be in the room with you. But I thank you that you welcomed me to the table. I receive you based on what you've done, not on what I could do. I'm asking you to save me, Jesus. Save me from my sin. Save me from myself and save me for your glory so that the world could see you and the world could know you and the world could be changed through you. Have my life, Lord Jesus. If you pray that prayer or one like it, God promises that he'll never leave you, forsake you. He promises that you'll be a new creation, that all things will pass away and all things will become new. And you have a new family in spite of what your history may be, in spite of you know anybody in the room yet or not, God welcomes you into his family as his son or his daughter. That means you have brothers and sisters, you have friends. And God is shaping us into a people that recognize Jesus alone as the head of the table. Not ideologies, not philosophies, not opinions, not political parties, not people, not individuals, but Jesus alone. And as God shapes us into that, it will only happen if we see Jesus in all his glory for who he is. And so what I'd like to do as we prepare for communion today is just to refocus on the face of Jesus. I mean, I can't imagine what it would have looked like for her in that moment just to look at Jesus with all eyes on her and all that stuff faded to the background and all she saw were the eyes of Jesus on her. And she heard the words, you're forgiven, go in peace. Something that she had probably never felt before or hadn't in a long time or never like that. And so right now, based on what Christ has done and who he is, let's just rest in his peace as we look at his face for a second, as we prepare to remember his sacrifice. So would you do that right now? Would you just meditate on the face of Jesus?